Good morning. Welcome to Mercy Presbyterian today in person here at our 11 o'clock service. Thanks for our 930 service people joining us here for the 11 and thanks for all of you that are joining us online today. It's been a while since I've lived in the South, so I've got to understand how to interpret your weathermen as to what a snow warning is or is not. So let's just chalk this up to a learning experience. Uh, a warning means perhaps I, I'm coming to see. So please join with us in worship today. We have a bulletin as you came in the door. Our bulletin guides us through our worship together. One of the things about worship is we are doing this together. We're not just uh, individuals who are worshiping in isolation, but part of the corporate worship experience, whether you're joining us online or here, is that together we are going into the presence of God and he is meeting us, he is speaking to us, he is encouraging us as his people to understand who he is and to live out the reality of his kingdom. And this is the beginning and the most important space where that begins to happen. So please join me as uh, we begin our service with an invocation, which simply means ask. Father, we ask you to come to be with us, knowing that you've already promised to do that very thing. You say whenever two or three are gathered together in your name, you are in the midst of them. And so, Father, we know you are present with us. You have filled your church with your spirit. You have called us your bride. And so, Lord, as we gather together, fill us with your spirit. Empower our worship. Enliven our hearts. Awaken and restore our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and join me in the call to worship that's printed on page two. Ah, I need my glasses. From Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. I who now to His temple. 
Thanks, please be seated. One of the things that marks uh, the church, God's people in the world, is the mark of love. We're called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the way that love blossoms and flourishes in our midst is by us being humble. And that humility starts in our attitude and our stance to God himself. This time of confession that we have each week is a call to humility, to be reminded that we are people in need of God's grace, that we're not perfect, far from it. And in fact, we, we sin. We sin against each other, we sin against ourselves, we sin against those we love, and ultimately we sin against God. And if we hide that sin, we're not humble people. We become proud people. And pride does not lead to love. But when we confess our sins, what we're doing is a very important exercise in guiding our hearts to the way of humility, acknowledging our need, and then having open hands to receive God's mercy and grace. So that's what this section of our liturgy is designed for. We'll together confess our sins corporately. We'll have a time for private, uh, quiet reflection. And there will be kids who make noise. That is totally okay. Parents whose kids are making noise, that's fine. As long as they're not screaming their heads off, it's fine. We all make noise. It's okay. Rustling is fine. But in that silence, in that quiet, it's a time for us to un unburden ourselves before the Lord. And then we'll come back together and hear God's comfortable words of assurance of pardon from his word. So together, let us confess our sins. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Amen. Let us take a moment of silence. Hear the comfortable words of assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God himself is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news. In light of that, let's stand to sing. Of woe I race to thee, the voice. 
confess our faith together in the words of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 together blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love 
He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Please be seated. Jason Webb will come and lead us in our prayers of the people, our pastoral prayer each week. Thanks, Jason. Good morning, Mercy. We've just sung Oluk and Stand Before Thee, and I think it's a great uh, question for us to ponder, but as believers, we know the answer. We know that uh, only by the merit of Jesus that we can stand before him, and because of that, we can pray with assurance and confidence that he hears us. So please bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us to your house this day. You have given us this fellowship as we are united in your Son. We give thanks that you care for us as your children. We pray, Father, that you would bless the work of mercy, that you would make us a light in the dark wilderness of life for many. Would you bind our hearts in loving service to one another? Make us a place of refuge for the needy. Let our people come as they are, knowing that there is healing freely given by the loving work of Jesus on the cross and in our own lives. Knit us together in unity. If there be hurts, let us seek healing. Injuries, let us seek restoration. And help us to view ourselves together as pilgrims progressing together until the day we are perfected and united with you for eternity. May the name of mercy be a sweet sound in the ears of those who hear it, because souls are coming to faith, and because you, Lord, are working in the lives of your people and giving the Father's love directly into our own hearts. Heal our people, Lord. We pray thanks for the children that you've given us. Protect our young. Strengthen these children to grow daily in your word and confidence in your son. We lift up the sick in our midst to you, and we pray for our parents and the elderly who may be dealing with illness and the isolation stemming from this pandemic. We pray, Father, for the leadership of mercy for Sam and Kate, that by ministering in your name, they would be a blessing to many. And we pray for the session in our diaconate, Lord, that their service would affirm the gifts that have been given to them by you, and that you would spread broadly the truth of the gospel to bless many and multiply the impact of mercy's ministry. Thank you for raising up leaders for the future of mercy. 
as we've taken nominations recently. We ask that you begin to work in the hearts of those nominated as candidates to seek your face daily and to pray to understand your calling and the desperate need for workers in the harvest. Lord, in the season of weariness from the pandemic, we give thanks for the many doctors and teachers and nurses, various types of caregivers, hospital workers, researchers, and others working on the front line who are nearest to the deepest hurts and fears as they work to care for, or for and eradicate this disease. Lord, you are well aware of our needs and you hear our prayers. So we confidently know we can ask you to end this disease and that you will hear us. Speed the time where we can look back on the pandemic negative effects as a distant memory. But Lord, when you do, help us to retain the gifts and many blessings that have come from the struggle. And let us see you move in such a way that many will turn to you and see their need for you and see your power to heal and to save. We are at your mercy, dear Lord. Father, we pray also that you would bring healing to our land, to our nation, both spiritually and physically. While there is so much that burdens our hearts, Lord, the events of this past week in Washington and the transition of leadership that is underway in our country stir us to look to you for help and direction evermore. Heavenly Father, we plead for your mercy and grace for our nation this day. We are living in times of deep distress, and people of all types feel frustrated and powerless. Forgive us, individually and as the church, where we have not shown the proper respect for everyone. We ask forgiveness for our sins of anger, arrogance, violence, and even at times our own willful blindness to the views and feelings of others, even when we disagree. Let us remember our Savior's instruction to ask forgiveness for our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray for those in authority over us as your word instructs. We pray for the courage to honor those who serve as civil magistrates by your permission and for your sovereign purposes. Finally, we ask that you remind us not to put our trust in princes, as the word says, but to trust in the Lord, who is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in the time of trouble. The word says the nations may rage, but we take our refuge in you. You alone are our strength and our shield. To you alone may our spirits yield. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we ask with the disciples and pray as the disciples did when we join our voices with the saints of old and say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand for the hymn of preparation.
Thanks. Please be seated. Kids, uh, before you leave for children's lesson, let me just ask you a question. In the passage we're going to look at when you guys go to your children's lesson, as well as us in here today, is what does the kingdom of God look like? Does anybody have an idea of what the kingdom of God looks like? Do you have like what? Like nothing. Maybe that's a that's a pretty close answer, Ford. Anybody else got any other ideas what the kingdom of God may look like? Just shout it out, because I can't see your hands. Like a cloud. You can't see it because it's invisible. Okay, Jesus says, and if you listen closely, the kingdom of God is like one of these. Can anybody see what's in my hand? No, because it's something that's really tiny. What are some tiny things that you can think of that grow into big things? Yeah. Seeds. Yeah, these are seeds. We eat these seeds. They're called mustard seeds. We crush them up and we make mustard out of them. But they start out as little seeds. And in this passage, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a seed, a little tiny thing that when planted, what do you think happens to it when it once it's planted? Yeah. It grows. How big do you think it grows? Gigantic. It grows, it says, big enough for the birds of the air to come and make nests in its branches. That's pretty big. So the kingdom of God is something that was tiny that then grows into something big. And that's what Jesus is talking about here today is that sometimes we miss the kingdom of God because we don't see it or we walk over it not expecting it to do what it's going to do. It's going to grow. And it's just like you, going to get big. And God's going to be able to do all kinds of things through it. So it's important as you guys leave and as we talk about this today, that we understand that God is bringing his kingdom and it's growing. And sometimes we miss it because we're not looking for it because it seems too tiny. Father, thanks for our children. We thank you for them in our midst to remind us that you love little things. You have blessed them. You have blessed children. And in those little things, you are doing amazing works. And so, Lord, we pray for our children that they would grow to know and love and serve you all the days of their life, that your kingdom would grow up in them, and that their, uh, the expression of it would be glorious to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, kids can be dismissed. Go out the back. And then we're going up to room 200 today for our children's lesson, and Jason's going to come and read our passage. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 13, and it's on page 7 of your program. Luke 13, 18 through 30 says, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, 
and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. So if I told you, you could have everything that really matters in life. You could have friendship, and you could have glory, and you could have connection, and you could have insight, and you could have freedom, and you could have peace, all for the price of something you already possess, and in fact, something that you possess that causes you a lot of trouble to begin with, that most of us would be eager and ready to get rid of if we could. Would you consider that a good deal? Yeah, it's a great deal. Everything for something we already have that's causing us trouble is the essence of this passage here that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God he begins to talk about as he's journeying to Jerusalem. And he's beginning to explain more and more clearly and pointedly about this kingdom in elaborate colors. And here is one of those places where he talks about this kingdom. And he begins to talk again, drawing on all of his other previous teachings about the kingdom of God. That it's a rule, it's a reign, it's a kingdom where all the wrongs are going to be redeemed. Where God dwells with his people in peace. Where the citizens of this kingdom become, by their inhabitation of it, their best possible selves. And the one thing necessary to enter it is very clearly articulated here in this passage. The section begins with two parables told by Jesus about this kingdom that we alluded to when we talked to the kids. There's a seed, a tiny thing, and there's yeast, another tiny thing, that grow into these things that are big and have huge impacts because of their presence. The kingdom looks like something small at the start, which then raises a natural question in those that are hearing Jesus' teaching about this kingdom. Okay, the kingdom's big, but it's small, it's tiny, it's hard to see. And so the natural question that comes up is, okay, if the kingdom is small, are only just a few people going to get into it? How many people does this kingdom, does this seed, contain? Is it big enough for all, all lots of people? You get that question. You begin to hear it. You've probably asked it yourself. The question is trying to game out the implications to other people about this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. But Jesus here takes a tact that you should be very familiar with by this point. He redirects the focus away from the question. In fact, he doesn't really answer the guy's question. Instead, he redirects, reframes the question around, um, instead of talking about these hypothetical other people who may or may not get into this kingdom, instead he makes this a very personal, very pointed uh, discussion and challenge about not squandering an opportunity that is in fact right in front of the person asking the question. In verse 24, 
Jesus introduces this very important idea that he calls the narrow door. What is this narrow door? So see, instead of talking about how many people are included in the kingdom, Jesus introduces this idea of access into the kingdom. How do you, how do you get in to the kingdom? And he says, it's through this narrow door. Now, there's been lots of conjecture. I've traced down lots of rabbit trails this week trying to find what exactly is the narrow door? Is it this, that, or the other? There's a lot of conjecture, but it's inconclusive. There's lots of things that could be the narrow door that Jesus is specifically talking about. It could be a gate in a city that you have to dismount in order to enter the city. It could be the servant's entrance into a big house. It could be in the temple, the, the court that the women or the Gentiles have to go to in order to enter versus the main entrance. But regardless of whether this is an exact reference to an exact thing or if it's just an illustration, it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying here that the entrance into the kingdom is more humbling than it is hard. The narrow way isn't necessarily difficult the difficulty of the narrow way is that it's humbling to access. That humility is open, but the narrow door, humility is the open but narrow door into the kingdom of God, is what he's saying. It takes humility to enter. Now this makes sense uh, because the way into the kingdom is like what Jesus says the kingdom of God is. The entry in reflects the character of a small thing a seed is easily uh, overlooked in its importance yeast that a woman uses to bake a lot of bread is overlooked but of vital importance anybody during COVID has made bread and forgot to put in yeast or not let it leaven and long enough realizes the importance of letting these small things do their important work. The kingdom of God is like these things. The entrance into this kingdom is humble because they do not exert their power in the way that the world expects power to be exerted. They exert power humbly. They don't do it through self-promotion. They don't do it through strutting. They don't do it through vulgar acts of dominance, but the kingdom of God, the entrance into the kingdom of God is humble and the way into it conveys that character. Humility, let's be honest, looks unappealing. Humility uh, feels awkward when we do it because humility breaks the one thing that's being required for entrance into the kingdom which is our pride. There's no way to enter the kingdom of God and hold on to pride at the same time. Pride has to be dropped in order to enter the narrow way. And entering into this narrow way brings in this incredible benefit. This way of humility is not a dark door. It is a door that is humbling, but it opens up into a vast space. And Jesus calls this man and, by extension, us to strive to enter this narrow door, which means accepting the challenge of this as a gift of grace. 
The narrow door is a tight squeeze. It's a tight squeeze to trust in Jesus' own humility on a cross. The way he saves us is through like a seed by his dying, his being buried, his rising again, resurrection, is an act of humility in exertion of his power, not of pride and dominance and rule and reign. That is one of power like the Roman Empire. But the way Jesus enters and establishes the way into his kingdom also echoes this way of humility. His humility, his humility on the cross is the source of our salvation. And so it's challenging for us because we live in a world in which there are lots of other voices calling for us to follow lots of different entrances that seem a lot easier, a lot wider, into other kingdoms that make similar promises to Jesus and his kingdom. And so for those of us uh, reading this, there's always this debate. Is the narrow way the only way? And then there's also the challenge of some of the language in this passage. When you read this passage, it's, it's not necessarily a warm and comforting passage. Last week, as we restarted our journey through Luke, one of the things I told you was that what you'll notice in this march towards Jerusalem, Jesus is intensifying. He's sort of notching up his um, rhetoric. He's talking more forcefully. He's being more blunt about the cost and the call of discipleship. And we see that echoed here, that this language about the narrow door is exacerbated by his talking about closing of a door and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we have to both weigh, one, understand, part of our reticence to hearing is just understanding Jesus's instructive intent is to clarify. And one of the things he's doing to clarify is to make very vivid the two ways, and the way of the kingdom and the way of the world. The other thing that puts us off oftentimes in this passage and reading those like it is that we have to um, realize that we have a nasty habit of blaming God for simply pointing out realities we'd prefer to avoid. That we get mad when God reveals something that is true, but we'd prefer not to talk about it. And one of the ways we as humans avoid discussion of difficult topics is to blame him for even bringing it up. In verse 25, um, the master locks up his house for the night. It's sort of the image of someone at the end of the night locking up, going around, turning out lights, getting ready to go to bed. And as he closes the door, the crowd that is outside responds in a very interesting way. How do they respond? They respond with indignation. They're upset that the door is being closed. They're knocking, they're banging on it. They're upset about it. They um, bring up these things. Wait a minute, you ate with us. You taught in our synagogues. What they're doing in their indignation, they are making assumption that their status, their relationship to the kingdom of God, their entrance potential into this kingdom is based on proximity. We were close to you. We've heard your word. We know about you. That should grant us entrance into your kingdom. 
The reason Jesus is saying this is an important aspect of the story is because these people are not acting in humility. Their pride is driving their indignation. Their pride is driving a wrong-headed assumption about how they enter into the kingdom of God. And in verse 25 and verse 27, the master in the story responds to these bouts of indignation from the crowd by this phrase, I don't know where you're coming from, or I don't know where you come from, which is a curious way of saying something here. And he says it twice, which again, like I said last week, anytime something's said or repeated twice or multiple times, it's a very important phrase. The best way I could sort of rephrase what the master in this story is telling these people is something like this. How'd you ever get the idea that you'd enter my house by demanding and through pride and through insolence? Oh, yeah, you got it from your overlord, the evil one, because that's been his ploy all along. So let me close the front door of merit to force you to consider the narrow door of humility. In this parable, the crowd is consumed with pride and insolence. And the closing of the door unveils or unpacks or reveals a behavior. They um, either turn towards weeping, which is sort of acts of self-recrimination and despondency from the fact that the door is closed, or they respond in the opposite way, which is gnashing teeth. I always get the image of where the wild things are, and they gnash their terrible teeth, right? This is an act of anger and violence. So either despondency or violence from the fact that the door has been closed come from pride. They seem very different, but the root is the same. And closing the door didn't cause the response. Closing the door simply revealed what the fruit of pride is, violence or despondency. Now, there's a note of humor always with Jesus' parables. Yes, he's turned up the volume on the intensity of his parables that he tells, but there's always this note of irony. And if you can imagine this scene, if this were a painting, imagine it, there's a door the masters simply close the door for the night, and suddenly people are extreme in their reactions, right? You have people uh, violently angry, banging on the door, and you have others that are weeping and despondent and just... But there's a part of the scene that Jesus has painted where there is still this uh, narrow door. I kind of imagine it, this narrow door with the light still on, in John, one of the Gospel of John, Jesus' I am statements, one of the interesting ones is he says, I am the door. And so here we even see this picture that this narrow way, this door, is actually Jesus himself still outside offering access. But everybody in the crowd is refusing to enter the very door that still stands open. That only thing that is required to enter it is a renunciation of pride in order to squeeze in through this door. None of us are ever going to enter the front door 
of the kingdom of God. None of us has the merit in order to do it. None of us has kept the law. None of us has considered our neighbor as ourselves. None of us has loved our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no human being, save one, who stands, has the narrow door, who could enter the front door of the kingdom of God. We were all, all people, in every place, in need of another way into the kingdom of God. So the front door has always truly been closed to us. There has always been a need for a narrow door. In the work of Jesus, uh, he, remember, he is, it says even in this passage, on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to forging this door, to opening a way for us, is pointing his audience to the front door has always been closed. There is never a way in there for you. It is foolish to even think that there was hope of an open door by assaulting and assailing the kingdom of God. You, was, you are always going to need help and that help has come. Faith is not demanding entrance through the front door. It is humbly being willing to lay down your pretense of righteousness and wiggle through the narrow door enough for it to rub off your pride. That's what faith is. In order to step into the kingdom of God, we'd move through this way of humility. Now, humility isn't humiliation, people. Humility is bowing. It's bending. It's acknowledging that we cannot storm the castle. It's knowing that we are weak and we have to depend upon another. In order to enter through this narrow way into this banquet room. Now, the other thing Jesus does in this passage that we oftentimes get so caught up with the negative imagery that we fail to see the incredible bright colors that he paints about the banquet hall. In this banquet hall, through this narrow way, is opened up a scene of light, a scene of joy, a scene where the patriarchs of our faith are sitting and laughing and enjoying, and also this surprising image of who else is included in this kingdom. And here is where Jesus finally answers the man's question. How many? Vast numbers. Not only those you expected to be there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but also those from the north and south and east and west will take their place at this table. And the first, those who think they're first, are oftentimes those trying to enter the front door in a fruitless effort, while the last, those that are humble, those that are not pretending to be anything but what they are, sinners in need of a savior, enter in and find a seat and a table and a name tag prepared for them. So, how to be humble. Four steps. I know you guys like these, this, so I'm giving it to you in four steps. How to be humble in four steps. First, 
Notice where you're either weeping or gnashing your teeth. Where are you despondent? Where are you discouraged? Or where are you angry? That's step one. And I don't mean that in a um, morose kind of just observing your life, sort of rub your hand over your life. Where is the hot spot of anger? Where is the hot spot of despondency? And then sort of pressing into that spot and being willing to sort of trace it down. What is, where did that come from? Why did I respond this way? What's behind this? What's going on? Is there behind all this stuff some issue of pride, lack of humility here? Just being curious about your life results in lots of interesting things. And if you're in a relationship with somebody, a friend, a close family member, somebody you care about, you can ask them this question. Do you see me responding in ways that are angry? Or do you see me responding in ways that are despondent? What do you think is going on? I'm trying to figure this out. See, asking the question, it becomes an act of humility to discover the answer. So that's step one, just simply noticing. Step two is placing yourself in this parable. The scene that Jesus drew here of sort of a crowd knocking on the front door, Jesus standing next to this open but narrow way, and then people on the inside celebrating. Where do you find yourself in this story? And what do you need to move from where you are to being in the place where there's light and health and peace and joy? Short answer, it's always going through the narrow way. The access, the entry point into the kingdom of God and into the experience and enjoyment of the kingdom of God is always through the act of humility of entering through this narrow way, of reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done to open this way for us of seeing his act of humility as not just a model that we could emulate, but really as the most amazing act that draws forth our worship. When we see Jesus and we have a vision for him, it empowers us to enter these narrow ways of humility with incredible sense of calm because we can trust his character. You can trust Jesus's character. If there's been one theme from me talking about the book of Luke, it's that. You can trust the character of your Redeemer because he cares for you. He has opened a way for you. And he's drawing you in. He's inviting you in to this path of humility. That's two. Three, striving to enter the narrow way is simply meaning for all of us, whether we're some people of faith or whether we're people who are not people of faith but are curious, this narrow way is for both of us. We have to enter it sometimes again and again and again. We are citizens of this kingdom. We just read Ephesians 1. That's an incredible distillation of the, what we are now because Christ has died for us and brought us into his family. An incredible statement. 
of the security of the promises that Jesus has achieved through his humility on behalf of his people. So it's not talking about status. The way of humility, by striving to enter it, means that I stay in this path of humility. I keep going back to the cross, that I am able to repent, which simply means to turn from the crowd at the door to faith in Jesus into a full-fledged family member by simply laying down my pride. Notice, place yourself in this parable, strive to enter the narrow way, and then fourth, enjoy the feast. We often forget this part of humility. Humility is taking us to a destination, and that destination is joy. That destination is release. That destination is the return of the things that we lost, our status, our joy, our peace, our fellowship. And entering in through this narrow way brings us into this kingdom. This um, passage of scripture was very important to a writer, Flannery O'Connor, who is a Southern writer from Georgia. Uh, who was writing the last half of the 20th century. She wrote mostly short stories about life in people experiencing grace. She said this, all my stories are about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing to support it. Grace comes and people have to respond to it. And one of her stories that I is almost a retelling of this parable of Jesus is called Revelation from her, uh, from her compilation called Everything That Rises Must Converge. And it's a story about an old woman. Well, not so old. She's in her late 40s. She's young, because I'm 55. She's a young woman. <laughs> about this young woman uh, who is in a doctor's office just talking smack to everybody in the entire doctor's office, judging them, casually racist, uh, you know, saying what she thinks. She's a really horrible human being, but she thinks she's a great, good person. And there's a woman, a girl in this doctor's office that confronts her. She says to her, the girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low but clear. And that was a prophetic word to Mrs. Turpin. She is undone by that word of judgment on her life and the way she's conducted her behavior. She goes back to her house. She takes her husband back home. She takes a nap and she gets up and she goes to take care of her pigs. <laughs> Connor is so great. And it says this. She's um, watering her pigs and cleaning up the pen. And she says, at last, she lifted her head, looking at the sunset. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from her side of the pen in a gesture of heretic and profound worship. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. 
Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash who she had previously been lamenting, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black folks in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and given the wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed, unblinking on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet. In woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first in the kingdom of God that is accessed through the narrow way of humility. Please enter this open door for the price of only your own pride, which is doing you no good. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, help us to be humble. Send your spirit of humility into us as individuals. Send the spirit of humility into us as a people, as a church. Send the spirit of humility into your people globally that we would willingly become servants, that we would willingly love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would willingly be agents of your grace and peace to a worried and broken world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.